I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. Glad to have you along. You know, we like to think of this as an inspirational playbook for life. It's all about people just like you, men and women with dreams and passions who simply refuse to give up or give in until they had created the life that they wanted. Right. People who weren't afraid to take a chance to to try something new or to make an effort to help others. Well, on today's show, we've got plenty of all three of those, including the story of a young man with a borrowed camera who saw something on the streets of New York that not only changed his life, but is creating waves throughout the global fashion industry. Plus, four friends who like to hang out at the pool, smashing world records, and oh yeah, they are all in their 90s, and they have a message of hope and inspiration for all of us. Plus, we have the plus-size personal trainer who says she and others like her are born to reign. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, Mark. We've got what happened when time began to run out for a world-renowned musician born with half a heart and the father and son team that taught the entire world a lesson about devotion, determination, and persistence. That's all today on Growing Bolder. Our next guest is one of our favorite Growing Boulder stories because of how he not only changed his life, but he showed the world a positive side of aging that really was never exposed before. And it all began when his grandmother suggested he move to New York City after he graduated from Columbia University. Yeah, and when he got there, uh, he immediately noticed the fashionable older women, some with over-the-top, unique individual style that he had never seen before. Uh, and get this, folks, he didn't own a camera, had never really taken a photo, so he borrowed one from his roommate, and the rest is fashion history. He launched a blog called Advanced style, published a best-selling book, and now has a documentary film out all under his advanced style brand. Welcome, one of the newest and most powerful voices in fashion, Ari Seth Cohen. Hey, Ari, how are you? Thank you so much. My grandma was the one who went to Columbia. I went to school in Seattle, but I moved to New York after she passed away because as a child, she told me to, to come to New York. She had studied there and, you know, was just so... Um, enriched by the culture and, you know, the energy of the city. Uh, Ari, look, nobody does what their grandmother asks. You must have been intrigued by the possibilities in the city. Well, you know, growing up, both my grandmothers were my best friends. I wanted to be old because of them, because they had so much fun. They were creative. They did what they wanted. Um, They really taught me about fashion and culture and, you know, how to be a good person and spending time with them. I never thought aging was a negative thing. And um, so I admired them so much. And, and I, I listened to everything that they said because they allowed me to question life. They allowed me to be creative. They allowed me to figure out what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, I mean, they were just wonderful. Isn't it amazing how life sometimes conspires to 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 expose you to these opportunities? Be, 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 because New York is filled with photographers, uh, Ari. Media is there, and, and yet you quietly move there and see something in a way that no one else really had. You become a street photographer with a borrowed camera. Did you have any idea that advanced style might explode into the global media platform that you've now built? No, I didn't really have any idea. I really wanted to approach the city through my grandmother's eyes. And I just started noticing all these incredibly dressed, creative and vital older people in the city and wondered why all of our role models in in media, in fashion, in general, are all younger. Um, and, and wondered why people like Mimi Waddell, who is this 94-year-old actress and model, and you know all these women that I was meeting on the street weren't the ones that were being featured. And, 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 you know, they were experienced, they were wise, they were cultured, they're gorgeous. Why, why were older people so invisible? And so I just started taking their photographs. And once I, um, you know, collected a few hundred photographs, I realized that these photos that I'd been taking really had the power to change people's perspective on aging. I, had, I didn't really have an idea that I'd be doing this for a living, but I knew that the men and women that I was photographing really could, you know, shape our view of aging in a different way. And what a mind blower too, Ari, that, you know, your photos, the blog, even the book and the documentary, people, people say, well, what are they? They're, they're about style 
in older women. But really, more importantly, what they're about is they reveal a zest for life that these people have, a, a creativity, a, a bold playfulness that really a lot of people didn't know existed. Exactly. I think when you look at them, it's really their spirit that comes through and their confidence and, you know, that energy that they have and passion for life. Because dressing up is only one aspect of their creative lives. I mean, a lot of these women are artists or, you know, writers or whatever it is that they've done their whole lives, they're continuing to do. And that's a really important um, part of this project is to show that just because you become 80 or 90 or 100, doesn't mean you lose that will to want to still create and be that person that you've always been. You just need those opportunities to continue, and you need a community around you that supports you no matter what age you are. Folks, we are talking to Ari Seth Cohen, who has transformed himself from a street photographer into a fashion icon and a major media mogul, and he's done it by, you know— representing older women and now men in a way that they never have been before. And, and, you know, Ari, Bill and I feel like we've been swimming upstream in what we do. You know, we're, we're kind of in the same uh, pond as you and that we create content. We're a media company uh, about older people and for older people. Uh, and, and the fashion industry and the media industry in general are two of the worst uh, when it comes to worshiping youth. It seems like the fashion industry is actually embracing what you are doing. Has that been difficult, and are you surprised by that? Well, yeah, recently, um, so many beauty companies have been choosing older actresses and models as the faces. Um, NARS, Marc Jacobs chose Jessica Lange, and I think L'Oreal might be working with Helen Mirren. I think that's a great step towards, you know, um, bringing visibility to older people. But I think it needs to extend way past the, you know, the fashion landscape and, and really be part of our, our continuing conversation about elder care and our treatment of older people. I think that it's wonderful that the fashion industry is now starting to wake up to the fact that there's this huge demographic of people who want to be reached out to, have the means to you know, shop. Um, but that's only one part of what really needs to be done to shape our, our, our you know, um, view and treatment of older people. How interesting, Ari, that step by step this project of yours, instead of, you know, it, it could have just been a blog, it could have run its course and faded away, but no, one thing has led to another. This whole thing keeps expanding because your work is, it's really, it's a revelation. How have the perceptions changed? What kind of feedback do you get from, from people who read your blog, from the people who watch the documentary and look at your photos? Well, early on, um, and this was one of the reasons that I kept doing what I was doing, I started to hear from young girls saying that they no longer feared aging and that they couldn't wait to be like these women. They couldn't wait to grow old. And that's something I hadn't considered. I hadn't considered that someone in their 20s would start thinking about aging because they get their first gray hair or, you know, um, whatever it is that makes them think about getting older. And so for me, the fact that these images could have so much power to really influence people to look at aging differently was wonderful feedback. Older women started emailing me and say that they all of a sudden felt the permission to dress up again, that they no longer felt invisible. Well, these were things that I didn't even know that were happening. And, um, you know, over the course of making the book and, and doing the film, when I go and I do talks and people come to see the film, these are the same things that they're telling me. And so I think it really comes to the point that we really need to change because why are we allowing people to feel this way? Why are people forced to really, you know, feel that aging is a negative thing? But I think it's wonderful that my work has had this positive impact on people. You know, it really has it when you, when you talk uh, to to uh, Ari Bill, you get the sense this is not a one trick pony. And uh, you know, as much as it seems like uh, you, you certainly could focus very narrowly in the fashion industry, uh, when I listen to you talk, Ari, it seems like you've got bigger designs in mind. You you are now trying to take this outside of just fashion and and really help transform the way the world looks at aging as a whole. Is that correct? Well, yeah, for me, fashion was a way to really an entry point into um, creating a visual conversation about aging. 
And it's more about personal style and lifestyle than even fashion. So for me, the stories that these women have, the way that they live their lives, and like you said, because they dress up, that is a sign of their vitality. That's what's really important to me. I mean, as a kid, my dream was to work at a nursing home as an entertainment director. Um, We took care of my grandmother, my mom and I, when she was sick, and we were her nurses. Um, So I'm very passionate about our treatment and the representation of older people in media. And what I'm doing is only one step towards that. And hopefully I will continue to do projects that extend beyond the fashion industry. I mean, that's definitely my goal. Is it true, Ara, you're writing a second book? Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I'm working on a, my the final parts of a proposal for a lifestyle book, which will really go into the lives and, um, and, and the creative, you know, um, parts of a lot of the women in my first book and some men, I want to really show through pictures how these men and women stay so vital. What are their secrets? So it will be a little bit more lifestyle based than the first book, which is all street style. Folks, he is one of the good guys. Ari Seth Cohen, creator of Advanced Style, the blog, the book, the YouTube miniseries, and now the movie. If you'd like information about a screening near you or you want to buy the DVD, check out AdvancedStyleTheMovie.com, and you really should read his blog. That is at AdvancedStyle.Blogspot.com. Ari, keep on keeping on, buddy. You're doing a great job. Coming up next, four friends that like to hang out at the swimming pool and smash world records. And get this, they are all in their 90s. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingboulder.com slash covid Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, folks, we talk a lot about adding years to your life, an opportunity that certainly exists today thanks to all these advances we've seen in modern medicine. Yeah, but here's the catch. Who wants to live into their 90s if you don't have a quality of life that you enjoy? Successful aging is all about quality of life, and a group of four friends from Jacksonville show us how it's done. The Rowdy Gaines Masters Classic, already known for fast times and world record-setting swims, is about to witness something extra special. Because we're going to try to set a world record in the 800-meter freestyle relay. I don't know whether we'll finish or not, but we'll try. For the first time since the international governing body of swimming began recognizing world records in the 400 and 800-meter freestyle relays, a team will compete in the 360-plus age group. Their ages? 93, 92, 90, and 89. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but you're a part of history right now. (laughs) I mean, I'd love to joke about it, but it's really true. Nothing like this has ever been done in our sport, in the history of our sport. This is the first time. I am so proud of you. And I'm so honored to be able to be in your presence. I really am. I am absolutely panicked. (laughs) After all these years, I can't create any nervousness. I'd like to get nervous, though. You like to? I'd like to again. It'd be a real kick. Before they go for the record, we had to ask. Have you got any ailments? Is there anything wrong with you? Everything you can imagine. Oh, you don't have enough film in that thing. I have uh, peripheral neuropathy in my in my legs, so I get cramps. But I've had heart bypass, macular degeneration, which keeps me from being able to see. Rotor cuff operation. I ruptured a, a tendon. I fell down the steps. I've had heart repair. Besides my bypass. I'm suffering from uh, temporal arthritis right now. I got a pacemaker. Aortic valve transplant. I've had a hip replaced. I've had a knee replaced. 
They didn't anything left really for him to work on. So why does he continue to swim at the age of 93? It got me to 93. My uh, doctor told me if I hadn't swum, I'd been dead 10 years ago. So I keep at it. Realizing the importance of swimming to his health and well-being, Tiger recruited the other swimmers who got back in the water after decades and now hold one another accountable for showing up to practice. guys and in a, in a sense they're keeping you alive. That's right. I owe them everything. I'm not going to pay them anything but I owe them everything. 93 year old Tiger Holmes is the leadoff man. Tiger dives in and almost immediately turns onto his back which is legal in the freestyle. Each relay member will swim 200 meters or eight lengths of the 25-meter pool. As his teammates anxiously await their turn, Tiger finishes strongly, giving way to Bill Adams, a retired law professor who swam for Duke decades ago. Now, I would ask you how that felt, but you're always going to tell me it felt like Yeah. <laughs> you're right, buddy. Adams powers his way through his laps, giving way to Edwin Graves, a former Georgia Tech swimmer. The anchor man is 90-year-old John Corse, an attorney who still practices law. Oh, there you go. Have a seat lap. Ed takes a seat beside Tiger and Bill while John sprints home, officially setting a new world record. Awesome. Way to go. While swimming's new international heroes pose for photos, the meet's host, three-time Olympic gold medalist Rowdy Gaines, is nearly brought to tears. I learned how to swim when I was nine months old. Um, and I've never had an experience like that before in my life. It, it was, uh, I guess it brings me back to my grandfather and, you know, thinking what a hero he was to me. And, and uh, they'll be gone soon. And, uh, it, it means a lot. It really does. I don't know why. I mean, it, it took 20 minutes to do it, but um, it means a lot to me. It really does. Apparently, it doesn't mean quite as much to the team. To be honest with you, it's a matter of uh, mathematical probability. And the probability is it has nothing to do with our swimming ability. What it has to do is with putting together four people in an age group like ours, and that's a very difficult thing for anybody to do. And they weren't through doing it. They swam two more relays together, setting records in both, a performance that earned them the Growing Boulder Inspiration Award, given for the first time without a vote of the complete committee. And I went to Mark and I said, forget the committee, this is what we have to do. And he looked at me and he goes, absolutely, it's a slam dunk. It's an amazing performance that sends ripples worldwide because they came not just to swim. They came to have a good time with their friends to demonstrate that it's possible for all of us to live a life filled with love, laughter, and world records, even into our 90s. Whatever you do, do it well and hard. Go at it 100%. You know, aren't they something? And Bill, one of the big takeaways for me is that they all had many of the same elements that anyone who lives that long is going to face. But unlike most, they just didn't let that stop them. They just kept doing what they loved. They fought through the pain, the injuries, the operations, the transplants, the replacements. They just kept going. That may be one of the coolest stories ever. These guys are in their 90s, still working, traveling there, laughing and loving life and setting world records. And you know what? After the meet, like a group of high school friends, they all pile into a car and they drive themselves back to Jacksonville. <laughs> Folks, that is what 90 is all about today. If you're waiting for your life's purpose to find you, well, you might be waiting the rest of your life. Dr. Dot Richardson says you got to go find it. And the key is to not be discouraged if you're not particularly good at it or can't make a living doing it. If you love it, do it, then do it more, and eventually, Dot says, it will become part of your life. Hi, I'm Dr. Dot Richardson, two-time Olympic gold medalist. 
If you're waiting for your life's purpose to find you, it could be a very long wait. Those who find the most success and happiness in life don't wait for the world to come to them. Your passion is out there waiting for you to find it. Start today by simply committing to try new things, to get a little outside of your comfort zone. That's where life gets exciting and rewarding. And don't worry if you're not good at something. Come on, nobody's good at something right away. The important question is, do you love it? When you do more of what you love, purpose and prosperity begins to flow into your life. Trust me. She knows exactly what she's talking about. And folks, it's pretty simple formula. Discover what you love to do and then do it. If you don't know what it is you love to do, just keep trying to find things to like. When it comes to personal passions, it's usually not love at first sight. The secret, the key, is to just keep looking. Coming up, the inspirational plus-size athlete who inspires women of all shapes and sizes to discover their inner athlete. This is Growing Bold. When the glimpse of our past fades away so fast Like a castanet dance in the night When the glimpse of our past fades away so fast Like a castanet dance in the night Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Bill and Mark here with you on Growing Boulder, and our next guest is an inspirational plus-sized athlete who is smashing stereotypes and inspiring others to get off the couch and get active. And that is critically important because all of us need positive role models. You know, that's a great point, Bill, because when we can see ourselves in others, that's when the real magic occurs. And a plus-size woman who want to get out there and compete, she is the role model. She's the founder of Born Terrain Athletics, an accomplished athlete who competes in triathlon, duathlon, half marathon, and rowing. Let's welcome Krista Henderson. Hey, Krista, how are you? Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Man, we love to have you. And let me get this out of the way real quickly, because to us, an athlete is an athlete. Young, old, black, white, big or small. We yes. wouldn't ordinarily point out that you are a plus-size athlete, but that really is the essence of your business, your brand, your message. Tell us what Born Terrain Athletics is all about. So I created Born Terrain Athletics because I really wanted to motivate and celebrate women who are using athletics as part of living a healthy lifestyle. I think today a lot of women um, are very fixated on their weight and their body shape uh, and less on health. And as a result of that, they have a really hard time even seeing themselves as being anything more than just on a constant weight loss journey or something of that nature. And I really wanted to create a destination where women could come and they could um, share and connect with other women who are living the athletic lifestyle. Because as you said, unless you can see yourself in that person and we don't see a lot of plus-size athletes in mainstream media, it is really hard to imagine and have that faith and belief. And this is really an opportunity for women to start to see themselves differently and live differently. And Krista, that's really your story too, isn't it? I think for years I read that you felt like you were trying to fix yourself by going on these weight loss plans and, and trying to get the weight off. But then once you became an athlete, that mentality started to change. How so? Absolutely. I mean, for sure, um, you know, weight loss had always been a big focus. I suffered from poor body image, um, poor self-esteem in that particular area. But when I connected with my triathlon coach, who I owe so much credit to in terms of the way I think about things now, the way that I uh, approach training, the way I approach eating, it is on a completely different level. I really value and respect my body and how it moves and 
uh, how I'm fortunate every day to be able to move it in the way that I want, especially as we continue to get older. And really working with my triathlon coach, I learned not only the technical aspects of how to train properly and how each workout is different, but also mentally how to think about being an athlete. I battled with struggles of what it's like to be competing against other people and, you know, maybe being slower and having to go through the process of realizing that I really am competing against myself and um, taking um, appreciation for everything that I do, not only on training day, but also on race day. And how do you describe yourself? I mean, are we being unfair to you when we say we're talking with Krista Henderson, a plus-size athlete? Uh, I mean, people can wrap their brain around that, but you are so much more than that. You're a certified personal trainer. You're a spin instructor. How, do, how in one sentence do you describe yourself, Krista? Oh, wow, that's a tough uh, question to ask. Um, you know, I guess uh, I, I do think that plus-size athlete is a great uh, a, a great label if you want to use one, a plus size athlete and health advocate, I guess is the way that I would like to describe myself because, um, you know, while the message is applicable to everyone on the planet, I do target plus size women because I think that they have um, some unique struggles and I understand those struggles of what it's like to be a plus size woman in today's life. Folks, we're talking with Krista Henderson and we were sitting in the office one day, Marcos, look, look at this photo and, and he found this photo of you on a bike, competing in a triathlon, and he took it, created a graphic out of it. He put it on our Facebook page, and the response was overwhelming. That single photo of you with a message, support, encourage, and admire anyone who's trying to better themselves, has over 51,000 likes, <laughs> 72,000 shares, and 1,000 comments, and nearly everyone, Krista, is positive. Have you had the chance to feel the love from that post? I remember when I discovered that uh, because I was actually on vacation and I was starting to notice all this activity happening on my own Facebook page and I was like, wonder what's going on? And I went out on my vacation one night, I took a t- um, some time and I went through all the comments and uh, p- put my own post on there and it was an amazing feeling because when I started my athletic career, uh, over 10 years ago, there was no social media, there was no Facebook or Twitter. So it, it, it was a challenge to connect with people and share my story. And I, I honestly believe that I couldn't have been the only person out there in the world who was doing what I was doing, but I didn't know because social media didn't exist. So taking the time to see that, and I appreciate you posting that and seeing all the comments and the fact that, like you said, there were so many shares and so many likes, just for me, really validated why um, it was important for me to create Born to Rain as a place for women to learn and to connect and share and to really, um, to you know, be the best that they can from a healthy perspective. You know, I got to tell you, Krista, we were proud of our community by the way they responded because, you know, we basically declare Growing Boulder as a no-hater zone. If you don't have something good to say, keep it to yourself. That said, there is no question there is a widespread prejudice against overweight men and women. I imagine uh, one of the things you have to overcome, uh, not only with yourself, but others that you are training, uh, you you probably encounter some mean-spirited behavior when you get out there, don't you? I, I would say that within the um, environment of my gym and when I'm racing, absolutely not. It is a very supportive environment. People respect what is required to train and toe the line of a race. And as you both would know from your own respective athletics, um, outside of that environment, I do experience it sometimes, but I have grown so much. And in a way, I feel for people who feel the need to be negative and, and make um, comments is because it's a lack of ignorance and, and not understanding. I think a lot of times people just judge in a black and white environment. They have no appreciation or understanding of a journey that somebody is, is going through. And even if you are going through a journey or you're just happy to be where you are and continue the athletics that you're doing, it doesn't matter. It's my life, it's my body, and it's my responsibility, and it really is nobody else's. I just think, though, that you know everybody can really enjoy their life when they are healthy, and athletics is a great way to stay healthy. And Krista, when somebody like you, who has courage and strength and cares about others, stands up and says, look at me, if I can do it, you can too, that means the world 
to everyone else. Folks, you can learn a lot more by going to Born to Rain Athletics. That's R-E-I-G-N, borntorainathletics.com for more information. Coming up next, he was born with half of a functioning heart and lived with it for decades. How an internationally acclaimed recording artist finally got a transplant and a new lease on life because that's growing bolder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Oh, now you see, this is what music sounds like. Clean, evocative, touching, emotional. Hey everybody, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton and... Wow, you're listening to Growing Boulder, and it's time now for our Surviving and Thriving segment with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude. It's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. And Mark, our next guest is a perfect example. Yeah, is he ever, Bill? He's an internationally acclaimed pianist, a producer, and a film composer. And as an indie artist, he has found great success without any major label support. And he's finding it after battling a congenital heart defect for decades before he finally got a life-saving heart transplant. Let's find out more about the man, the music, and mostly the message as we welcome Paul Cardell. Hey, Paul, how are you? How are you? Good morning. Thank you for your time, and what a fascinating story. Uh, And if we can, let's go back to the beginning, because you were born with a congenital defect, essentially half of a functioning heart, given just days to live, but you defied medical expectations from day one. It wasn't easy, though. Tell us about your early childhood. It sounds like almost endless surgeries and illness. It was unusual because doctors did not expect me to survive that first year. Fortunately, I had very optimistic parents, and we just stayed on top of my my, my medical care. And fortunately, uh, there were procedures and techniques that kind of grew up with me in the perfect time. So every time I needed uh, heart surgery on this complicated, I was born with half a heart, really. And so every time I needed surgery on that particular heart, it always seemed like there was something there that had been created to prolong my life, and it was it was a pretty normal childhood, but I was a little slower than most kids and uh, didn't always have enough uh, oxygen, which is probably why I leaned towards doing music. So, so let's pick that up and see if we can bring these two divergent lines together. I, I understand from reading about you, this is Paul Cardle we're talking about, incredible composer, that you took up the piano, I think it was around age of the, the age of eight, but you didn't stick with it very long, and you didn't pick it up again until something terrible happened in high school. What was that, and what drew you back to the piano? It was a, a very sad situation. I, I lost a friend of mine in high school. He was a musician, and for whatever reason, in trying to understand uh, my own situation, because, see, I was born with a a chronic illness, and yet somebody perfectly healthy out of nowhere uh, in an accident, he passed away. And so in trying to comprehend my mind around that, I went into my parents' living room where there was a piano. I sat down, and I just started to play one note at a time. And for whatever reason, at that moment, all this peace came into my heart uh, that everything was okay. And I, I created a song, and I, I didn't have much training other than the couple of lessons I had when I was eight years old, but I took this song over to my friend's parents, and I played it for them, and the feeling and the emotion, the intensity of the experience, and just to see his father, who was a pretty tough guy, to see him, you know, vulnerable for a minute, and then to continue to have these types of experiences, that's where I knew that there was something special that I had that I could offer the world. 
and that was in composing and creating these piano songs. And you've been doing it successfully ever since. So you live with this life-threatening half a heart for decades, finally got on the transplant list uh, in 2008, waited over a year for a heart. What took so long? Why was a transplant not an option until then? Well, the challenge is... They, it was timing. They didn't know exactly when I would need a heart. We knew it was in the distant future. My heart began to fail, and I had to cancel gigs. I couldn't uh, record much music, and my heart was just getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, they listed me for a heart transplant, and yet uh, the chances of getting a transplant are very difficult because we don't have a huge organ donation population. It's there. But not a lot of people are, are signing up or thinking about the fact that they could donate their organs. And so it was kind of a catch-22 race. Doctors gave me a year to live with my diagnosis, and yet they also said it'll probably take about a year to get a heart. Fortunately, it was on day 385 that they came in and told me that there was a heart that was available that was a perfect match. New Heart, Paul, and New Opportunities. The first album you recorded after that called New Life was a huge hit. It debuted number one on the Billboard New Age album charts and held that position in the top five for more than 30 weeks. So something you did, Paul, connected with others through your music. Yeah, it was interesting because everybody has these deep personal experiences that they're all going through. We don't necessarily share those with everybody. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to bear that burden on other people. Yeah, we're all going through these different things. And for whatever reason, the music that I've created over the years has been very helpful for people. I got a call. I got an email from a soldier in Afghanistan who was really stressed out, dealing with a lot of anxiety, trying to figure out, you know, if he's ever going to get home to his kids. And he went back to base and was listening uh, to Pandora, and this song came on. And all of a sudden, he just felt all this overwhelming peace, like everything's going to be okay. And he was just writing me saying, you know, thank you, it was one of your songs. And then some of the other guys also there uh, serving with him heard the, heard the music. And, and so it's interesting, you got these these really tough men listening to this soothing, relaxing, peaceful piano music to... to uh, endure the the, the day of, of uh, miss war and all those things so it's been interesting to see what 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 happens that i really don't have any control over paul we want to get to this before we run out of time you recently released saving tiny hearts which is a collection of some of your greatest work over the past 15 years really a, a fabulous collection you're making a donation from every album sold to the saving tiny hearts society tell us quickly about that if you will the saving tiny hearts society they Seed Grassroots Medical Research for Congenital Heart Disease. Congenital, <clears throat> congenital heart disease is the number one birth defect. It's the least funded, and yet there's over a million children born worldwide every year with some form of defective heart. And I'm one of the uh, the, the longest living, and so I, I I meet all these families. I see all these kids. I've been very very blessed, and so we've created this beautiful beautiful album. The Saving Tiny Hearts and all of my royalties are going to go directly to funding medical research, really to solve the problem, rather than just, you know, to buy a box of tissues. We're going to solve the problems to help prolong these kids' lives so that they can enjoy everything that's beautiful that I've been able to enjoy. Paul, while you're on that train of thought, what's the takeaway here? What can all of us learn from what you've been through and what you've experienced? I think ultimately our lives are very fragile. Uh, We sometimes feel completely immortal and we completely get immersed in, you know, the daily routine of life. And yet sometimes we just need to take a step back and reevaluate where we are, what we're doing, what we want out of life, and just live every day with a reminder that uh, this is a priceless gift, this life we've been given, and just to enjoy it. Wow, well, there's a great guy with great music making a big difference. He is Paul Cardall. Check out Saving Tiny Hearts and New Life, available along with all of his music. Just go to paulcardall.com for more.
Coming up, one of the most dedicated fathers ever, an international symbol of parental devotion who, along with his amazing son, has inspired millions. That's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest is one half of one of the most inspirational father-son teams in history. Over the last 37 years, Team Hoyt has completed in over 1,100 races completed and competed in, including marathons, Ironmans, and triathlons. Yeah, you know, and they've done it in spite of the fact, or really maybe because of the fact that the son was diagnosed with cerebral palsy shortly after birth and can't talk, walk, or use his arms or legs. They've been powered by love and the physical strength of the father, Dick Hoyt, who is now 74 years old, now officially retired from competing in marathons and triathlons after finishing this year's Boston Marathon. Let's welcome Dick Hoyt. Hey, Dick, how are you? Hey, good. Very good. How are you? Well, we appreciate your time. And, and before we go any further, congratulations on a remarkable 37 years. You guys have inspired millions. You've competed in over 70 marathons, six Ironmans. Uh, and, and and during that time, you're towing, carrying, pushing, and pedaling Rick as well. Uh, I know your work continues, but you got to be glad that the, the grueling races are over. Well, I'm not glad, no. <laughs> No, my, you know, I'm 74, like you said, and my body's starting to tell me it's time to slow down. So we won't be doing any more Ironman triathlons and full marathons. Rick will have somebody else push him in the Boston Marathon, you know, next year. But Rick and I will continue to try to do 20 smaller races during the summer, which would be Olympic-sized triathlons and 10-mile races and maybe half marathons and stuff like that. And, Dick, tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, it's so remarkable because doctors recommended that your son's situation was hopeless, and you, it's almost like a movie where they, they told you that he should be institutionalized, but you ignored that. And what's happened to him since? It's just amazing. You know, the doctor said, forget Rick, put him away, put him in an institution. He's going to be nothing but a vegetable for the rest of his life. Today, Rick's 52 years old. We still haven't figured out what kind of vegetable he is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we mainstreamed Rick, and, and uh, Rick has graduated from public high school. Rick's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself in his own apartment, and Rick and I have competed in over 1,100 athletic events in the past 35 years. So uh, our message is, yes, you can. There isn't anything you can't do as long as you make up your mind to do it. And Rick is actually the first person in the world to ever do the Boston Marathon and Ironman triathlons, and that's in different countries also. You know, it's amazing. You're making all the rest of us dads look bad, Dick, but uh, we certainly admire you for, for what you do. You know, take us back to 1977, which is when Rick first asked you through a computer, I believe, if you guys could run a race together to benefit an athlete at his school who had become paralyzed. This is the kind of kid Rick is. You weren't a runner, you weren't in shape, and yet you finished all five miles. And after the race, Rick said something to you that literally changed both of your lives. What did he say? Rick said to me, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears, which was a very powerful message to me. If you think about it, somebody that's in a wheelchair can't talk, use their arms, their legs, and now they're out there running and their disability disappears. He called himself Freebird because now he was free and able to be out there competing and running with everybody else. And he actually had a sign made up that said Freebird that he put on his chair. Such an incredible story and such a testament to, to, to you not giving up on him and giving him a chance to be who he is. How, can you give us a sense of how he communicates with you? When did you realize that the doctors were wrong about your son? Well, we could tell by looking in Rick's eyes that he was paying attention to everything we were saying. 
So we taught him the alphabet and the numbers, and we did a lot of reading with Rick. And then we tried to get him in school, and they said, no, he doesn't understand. He won't be able to learn. So we went and met some engineers from Tufts University in Boston, and we talked to them. And they said the same thing, that he wouldn't be able to learn. So we told the engineers to tell Rick a joke. And they told Rick a joke, and Rick cracked up laughing. And they said, wow, maybe there is something there. So they said, if you can get us $5,000, we'll build a communicating device for Rick. Now, you got to remember, this was 45 years ago, and $5,000 was a lot of money. But the Hoyt family raised the $5,000. We gave it to the engineers, and they built what was called the TIC, the Tufts Interactive Communicator. The engineers were coming to our house, and everybody's betting what are the first words Rick is ever going to say. Well, his mom's saying it's behind mom, and me to dad, no, it's going to be behind dad. Well, the Boston Bruins were going for the Stanley Cup. And the very first words he ever said was, go Bruins. Wow. And, and you guys, uh, maybe shocked is too big a word because you're living with him. I know you had a sense of what he was capable of and what he was thinking and his, his understanding of life. But, but when, what does it do to a dad after the sacrifices you make when, when your child says, go Bruins? Well, it's, it's just unbelievable because right then and there, you know he understands everything that's going on, and he loves sports. And so what we did is we took Rick to the school department. The principal of the school took him in a room and with some teachers, and they left us outside because before they were saying we were answering for, for him. Well, they asked him questions. He answered them correctly, and they had to accept him in public school. And then after that, the federal government came out with a grant, and they were building these computers so other people could use them to communicate. It's just unbelievable what he has done you know, for his life and how he's affected the whole world. And, Dick, he's not done, right? You said he's living on his own. He's 52. He's a college graduate. What's his life like now? He's very, very busy. He has his own consultant business. He does speaking engagements on his own, plus he does speaking engagements with, we, with me. When I do speaking engagements, they're for an hour, and he usually does the first 15 minutes. And he also he's at Children's Hospital in the communication department. And, and what we do is we get emails from people all over the world, and they're looking for the same type of computer device that Rick used. And we got this fellow from Children's Hospital. His name is John Costello. And he researches where all these people come from, and he can give them the information where they can go and try to get help to get their, their children or grown-ups or whoever needs a communicating device. And this fellow does everything for nothing. You know, Dick, I think given the choice, yours is a life that that none of us would choose up front. But now looking at it through the prism of time, knowing what you've done with your son, the self-sacrifices that you've made, would you change anything? I mean, we all want to make a difference, but you guys have made an incredible difference. Well, no, I wouldn't change anything. The only thing I told Rick, I said, why did you wait till I was 40 years old to run in that race? You should have asked me when I was like 30 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, do you get a sense, Dick, what, what does he think of his old man? Oh, he picks on me all the time. He <laughs> says I'm getting old and slower now. <laughs> but we have a great time, you know, together and all that. And what Rick said was that... Uh, you know, if Rick wasn't disabled, he says that he would get a wheelchair and have me sit down and he would push me. Hmm. You know, it is an amazing story and one that almost everybody in the world not only knows but has benefited from. And, folks, we've got to tell you that Team Hoyt is much bigger than just Dick and Rick Hoyt these days. They've created a nonprofit foundation. They help young and disabled Americans. And, you know, this is a guy, Dick Hoyt, who is more than a dad. He's become a symbol of parental devotion, of strength, of perseverance, self-sacrifice. Dick Hoyt, thank you for your example. And if, folks, you'd like more information about Team Hoyt, just check out Team Hoyt.com. And before we leave, let's give you a quick takeaway, this time courtesy of Ferris Bueller. Of course, Ferris is a fictional film character created by John Hughes and played by Matthew Broderick, but his words could not be any truer. Ferris looks directly into the camera and says this, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Isn't it great quoting Ferris Bueller? The point is, it's easy to get so busy with our to-do list and the chores that we have every day that we fail to stop and appreciate the beauty and especially the people that surround us. The important things that we tend to take for granted until it's too late. So stop. 
Look around, because that's what's important, and that is part of Growing Boulder. We'll see you again next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Turn.